Good morning, church. Any uh, hope-filled people in the house today? All right, so the rest of you got to answer eventually. Any uh, hopeless people in the house today? I'll take that. That's good. Still, that's not 100% participation. I'm to go with this next one. Are any, uh, um, I don't know, muscle mental soap people in the house today? <laughs> All right, cool. Well, listen, um, I, have, I have a goal for us today. We're going to walk out of this place filled with hope. And uh, the reality is it can be hard. It be hard to be hope-filled. But we have a great reason to be filled with hope today. And so with that in mind, I want to say I'm glad that you're here. And I want to say welcome. If you are visiting with us for the first time, uh, I pray that you find a home here. Like Pastor Isato said, we want to know that you're here. And so if you do us a favor, let us know by uh, texting BTVIP to 97,000. Uh, we'll be able to touch base with you. Uh, you know, being here doesn't mean you just show up and get in a seat and then leave. Uh, when I say be here, I mean belong. Uh, God has called his people into family. And as you know, uh, family's difficult. Except that this church is perfect, so there's nothing, nothing wrong, right? Uh, but really, family's difficult, but it is so necessary in life for growth, for encouragement, uh, for strength, for provision, for camaraderie, all the things. And, and by design, God has called his people, his church, to family. And so when I say I'm glad that you're here, I really do pray that you find a home here because this is a special, special place. Just as we were singing these songs, uh, I got moved uh, to tears. And so I had to sit down and fight it back because I'm a man. <laughs> Just kidding. Anybody who knows me knows I cry all the time, and I'm okay with that. That's fine. <laughs> So I'm still a man. It's okay. It's okay. Um, hey, guys. My name is Colin, and, and I'm the student pastor for BT. And uh, that's my people, and I love them. You guys are great. Um, and uh, I get the privilege of, of preaching today, and um, it's great to be here. Uh, even though I can look across this room and see so many wonderful faces, uh, I know that there are many more who are joining us. With also, They also have wonderful faces. Uh, they're joining us. BT online campus. So BT McAllen, would you make some noise for our BT online campus as we welcome them? You know, as we talk about the reality that, that God is working here, Pastor Risado was able to share some numbers. And uh, the reality is, right, we, we get to celebrate year to date, 346 people have given their lives to the Lord. Uh, that is a, not a small, small move. That is a huge move. And uh, of those uh, we've seen 198 go public uh, with, with a profession of faith through baptism. And uh, guys, we say all the time that we, we want to foster a, celebra uh, a culture of celebration. It's because it's worth celebrating that lives are being changed and transformed because of a move of God. It is a special place to be here. Uh, and so I'm grateful that you're here today, and I'm grateful that we get to sit under uh, the Word of God. I pray that God's Word would move in this place. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 22. We, we started a series, or we started a series last week called uh, A Thrill of Hope. It comes from one of my favorite um, Christmas songs that we just sang a part of, O Holy Night. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, is the full, full lyric to that song. And, and, and as amazing as Christmas is, and it is amazing, uh, this season can be wearisome. Amen? Just me, cool. All right, um, it can be tiring. It can be exhausting. I mean, how many people are uh, done with their Christmas shopping? 
everybody look around. Okay, got none. Okay, like zero hands. All right. Um, how many people are, have hit their quota on how many Christmas parties they're going to this year? Why'd you laugh? Because you're tired, right? I know you feel it. It's the weary world is rejoicing, right? There's, there's hope in this situation, but let's be honest. That's the question I asked up front, right? Like, how many hope-filled people do we have in the room? We could all shout and praise and feel it, and it's good, but the reality is, is as hope-filled as we might be, we can still be tired, amen? Amen. Uh, it's been an exhausting few months for, for me and my family. I'm just trying to navigate some, some hard things. Like not, not, well, my family, yeah, that's enough, okay? Uh, but uh, just, just life is hard, and it's, and it's rarely convenient to have to go through tough times, is it? Rarely. And in a season like this where we talk through the, the Advent themes, right? Love, joy, peace, hope. These aren't feelings that we just muster up because it's Christmas season. You see, we, we talk through these, things, uh, these themes because they're not just a goal. They're a reality because of Jesus. And so as weary as we might be, this thrill of hope reminds us that circumstances do not get to dictate or direct the promises of God. So we need to be a people filled with hope. But still, it gets, it gets to be hard. And, and as, I, 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 as we walk through our text, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's kind of a difficult text. But again, the goal is to get to a place of hope. And we're going to get there. But we're going to find that sometimes even... Uh, following God in faithfulness can be a tough challenge. It might even inspire hopelessness for some people. But what I think happens for us is as we approach God's word, we let the Spirit do the work of inspiration uh, in our lives. We're going to find the truth, hope, the hope that we cling to, the hope that we have is rock solid, immovable. There's nothing that can deter the promises of God. Cling to those things, trusting that he who promised them is faithful. So I have this, this reality I've been trying to deal with in preparation for the sermon, and it's trying to understand that though we have this great promise, why is it that we get so easily sidetracked? What, what are the threats to the promise of hope that we have? And there could be a lot of them, right? You could probably already think uh, of a handful of things that, that threaten your hope on a personal level. But I, I want to share with you uh, something I've come to, and I think, it, I think it's, it's uh, faithful to the text. I think one of the biggest threats, and well, I won't say biggest, I'll say subtlest, which can mean dangerous, right? One of the subtlest threats to hope is the what-ifs of our now, when I say what ifs, I mean, I mean the hypothetical uh, scenarios in our lives. Does anybody, in, it's probably just going to be me again. I know you're perfect, okay? But does anybody in here argue with people in their head before they ever see them? Okay, man, praise God. My people, yes. All right, good. You know why we do that? Because we fixated on a possible outcome, but not the reality of the situation. Possible and reality. Potential and reality. That is kind of the tension of hypothetical mindset. And in a season of hope where we, we think that we just need to, man, set our eyes on Jesus, 
do it, okay? But like we think that we just need to set our eyes on Jesus and everything's going to fall into place. It will, but sometimes as we navigate the complexities of a season like this that, that evoke all of these emotions and, and kind of uh, affect our mental health and our emotional health in some ways, it can be easy for us uh, uh, to just fall victim to our hypothetical mindset. And it really is just that reality that we play this game in our minds. We bring to our imagination. Uh, uh, or we imagine a possibility rather than evaluate reality, right? By definition, a hypothetical situation is a hypothesis. Now, seventh graders in the room in science, y'all answer, no, we're not gonna do that to you. I won't put you on the spot like that. But that's what happens. It's when we ask ourselves the what if questions of life. Now, my, my son is about to turn, my oldest son is about to turn five in two weeks, a week and a half, Yes, and he doesn't know. I won't ask him. Uh, uh, he turns five, and my boy, like his daddy, loves pizza. I'm a youth pastor, so it's like part of the job description. I think is to eat like at least six meals a week uh, pizza. That's not true. <laughs> Don't bring me pizza. Um, but my son loves pizza and chicken nuggies, dinosaur nuggies to be exact. All the youth got excited. All right, good. Uh, now, that's not a sustainable diet, right? Parents in the house, right? That's my other son crying about it. He knows it's a reality for him. Uh, it's not as sustainable, like it's not healthy, it's not good. Now, listen, here's the thing, though. As good parents, like I believe that we are, we like to uh, give him nutritious food. And without fail, my son will ask this question when we put, put it in front of him. First of all, the question is, what is it? Second is, what if I don't like it? That's not necessarily a hypothetical situation, maybe a little bit, but it is, I think, I think it hits that what if type of scenario. Now, here's what it does for my five-year-old son, my almost five-year-old son, is whenever we present that healthy option meant to edify him and build him up and help him get healthy, right? Uh, he says, what if I don't like it? And that question in and of itself is enough to help him dig his heels at the kitchen table and not eat until we can swap that healthy dish out for a slice of pizza and four dino nuggies. It's the what if scenario. It's the reality. It's the possibility. What if I don't like it? Hadn't even tried it yet, but already he's debilitated by that question, by the possibility that something is not going to work out in his favor. Now that's, that's, it's funny to think about it like that, but it is silly. And I think, though, that it does communicate to us the reality that sometimes those what-ifs in our lives can be debilitating. I think about it this way. As a youth pastor, every year it starts about this time of the year. Sorry, you have to hear the seniors. Uh, seniors are starting to get really serious about college. And it's not that they're serious about, like, getting out and going to college. It's serious about the reality that their life is about to be forever. And that the choices that they, they make in the next six months can have the trajectory or can have the potential to change the, the trajectory of their life in crazy ways. It's a very stressful time. And so what I hear every year is, well, pastor, what, what, if, I, what if I pick the wrong school? Or what if I, what if I pick the wrong pro uh, program? What if I graduate with honors, I'm the best of the best, and I hate my career? Those questions become debilitating. They can stop somebody from making any kind of progress or movement 
in their life, right? I would think about it this way, parents in the house, Selena and I ask ourselves this question about a lot, right? Again, five-year-old and eight-month-old, we don't really know what we're doing. I would like a little encouragement. Tell me I'm doing good, guys. <laughs> like, we, we don't. It's hard. Like, we, they always, I always heard growing up, right? Like, there's no handbook for babies. We got a handbook from our doctor. <laughs> it helped a little bit. <laughs> but babies are hard. But we ask the question, right? What if we're not doing it right? It's scary. Like, or, or what if we're not doing enough for our babies? I think about this way in pastoral ministry, right? Like we get asked for advice a lot, biblical counsel a lot. What if the advice we give isn't really helpful? Like those what ifs create these scenarios in our lives that, that, that layer on tension and stress. And, our, and, and what can happen is if, if we ask these questions long enough, right? what if, what if, what if, what if we will find ourselves being driven crazy? Let me ask you this question. Do you know anybody that lives their life in what if? Like constantly looking for problems to try to solve. It's always the possibility of problems. Now, I would ad admire that on some levels, right? There are people in my life that I know have this crazy ability to identify a problem that's going to come five steps down the road somewhere, and they're always evaluating, and that's a good thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of problem-solving people in your life who are always looking for a possible problem to solve. And if in the what if, this, this is probably going to be for you. Because what I want to say is if you're always in pursuit of solving a problem, you have to have a problem to solve. That means that you're always pursuing a problem. You have to have a problem for, uh, first. And unfortunately for us, what if livers, all too often, we don't have a pro uh, when we don't have a problem to solve, we end up creating problems. Not from reality but from possibilities. And when we live our lives solving hypothetical problems, we end up living from crisis to crisis. And more often than not, we are not resolving the crisis. We are succumbing to them. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That's not a really fun thing to preach because that's not been a fun thing for me to live, if I could just be honest. I remember my, my dad. My dad is amazing. Uh, he, he, uh, he's the type of person that just tells you how it is. Y'all have those people in your life? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's not real good. Uh, my dad's really good, though, okay? Because uh, he'll, he'll point out problems, but he'll offer up solutions. And I remember he was telling me, he, he began to see this pattern in me as I got to be a, a young adult. Um, every December and every May, I would just get so wound up tight and just so stressed. And I would recluse. I would get away from everybody. I couldn't function. I had to kind of shut down for a while. But eventually, if somebody kind of poked long enough, I'd just lash out. And my dad pointed that out, not to just say, hey, look, you're a terrible human, right? He said, he said like, we got to get this fixed. Let's identify some of the stress markers in your life. Let's identify some of the promptings that are, that are making you react this way. And what my dad was able to do, he helped me understand that I stress about money, Christmas season, hello, and success, schooling, like finals season, right? My, my college students in the room, right? We feel that right now, don't we? Like, there's finals waiting for us. You're probably like, can you please hurry it up, dude? I got to go study, right? Like, we feel that kind of pressure. And, and what can happen is, is we don't really rise to the occasion to solve the problem. But what we do is we succumb to the problem. But let's just be honest. That is a real problem. Succumbing to that kind of stress is a real problem. Let's, let's just take it a step further. 
the world has enough problems without us making some up, doesn't it? Let me ask you again real quick, okay? The world has enough problems without us making some up, right? Okay, thank you. I'll just make sure I'm not alone. Our reality is filled with enough problems. We don't need to live our lives creating more problems. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say if you identified with the stuff that I've struggled with, then you might be at risk for what I call deferred hope. Like deferred, right? To put something off for a minute until I can get to it. A deferred hope is not a good thing. Right? Hope isn't just this like mental framework. Sometimes we talk about hope like, oh, I hope it works out. Like, like in the throes of young love. Right? Oh, I hope that he's the one or she's the one or whatever. I met my spouse and we knew immediately, right? So we'd have to go through all that mess. No, okay. It's, it's man, I just really hope this job opportunity pans out. And it's really just hope. It's just like, man, it would be great if it happens. And we just kind of treat it almost like it's a lottery. Like, well, we're going to see what happens. I just want to tell you that that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope has substance. It's a promise from God that when God says, hey, this is going to happen, though it may not be realized yet, we can take it to the bank because we know that God is faithful to keep his promises. So what I'm saying is the problem of deferred hope is us saying, I'm going to get to that thing eventually. First, I'm going to try to muscle myself out of this mess I've created. Deferred hope. I think is the precursor to imminent doubt. Because if you don't set your eyes on the promises and processes of God, then you will miss out on his providence every time. And if you are missing out on God's activity in your life, then you have no room to do anything else but to doubt. Where is God in this? Where is God in this season? Where has God been in the presence of the death of a loved one? Where has God been? in this crisis? Where has God been uh, in my school? Like, where is God taking me? Like, I just, I don't have time to think about what God is doing. I just need to get through this thing here right now. You see, but whenever we forsake God's involvement, we forsake the hope that he offers. It's dangerous. So let me ask you this. How, how, How does that practice affect your faith? Probably not very good ways. Probably in some pretty dangerous ways. And, and I remember talking about this with, with uh, one of my pastors uh, early in my ministry. I, I was talking to him about some of the struggles of pastoral ministry, the stresses of youth ministry budgets and planning events and teenagers being wonderful teenagers. Um, and they are, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember creating these situations and bringing them to, well, I can't make that decision because if I make that decision, then this person is going to react this way. And if he reacts this way, then it's going to trickle down effect. Before I knew it, it felt like everybody was, was on the verge of mental collapse. I mean, like just, it just was completely unrealistic. And my pastor said something that he learned from a pastor here, a, pastor, a previous pastor, Pastor Rex Holt, who said the problem with hypotheticals, the problem with hypotheticals is we never consider God's power and providence. The problem with our hypotheticals is that we don't consider God's power or his providence. And I'm going to tell you this. I don't think that anybody really understood the weight of what ifs like Abraham did in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 today, and I invite you to turn there. We're going to study a passage uh, 
that really has a lot of glimpses of, of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, but comes hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. But what we're going to find is, is this man, Abraham, promised by God, the great patriarch of our faith, late in his life is promised at this old and childless age. Abraham uh, uh, is promised by God that his descendants would bless the earth. And that his, his descendants would outnumber the stars. That he would father generations that would go beyond him and that would, that would go forward for generation after generation after generation after generation. So many that you can't even count, but through that promise, God would bless the earth. And now in this situation, he's an old childless man supposed to father a generation that would out stars. That seems like a problem. I want, to allow, I want to ask you to allow me to remind you that possibilities and potential problems hold no power over the promises of God. And that God provided what he promised. And God gave to Abraham a son. A son who the scripture tells us he loved. It was his only son through the line that God called. God gave Abraham a child named Isaac in fulfillment of his promise that he would give him a child. It's a happy ending, right? God fulfills his promises. Amen. Don't we go home and like feel good about hope, right? God's faithful. It's good. Nobody's talking back to me now. Okay, so we don't feel hopeless anymore, hopeful anymore, all right? That is good news. But in our passage, we're going to see that God calls Abraham to do something unthinkable. What if, though God provided this promise, what if God would call Abraham to lay his son down on an altar and sacrifice him as an act of worship to God? Well, that's what happens. Let's read our passage today. Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, verses, nine, uh, sorry, verses 8 through 19. Here's what the word of God says. It says, Abraham answered Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the walked on together. And when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar at the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here am I, or here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your, your own son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. And so today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn this is the Lord's declaration because you have done this thing and have not your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and on the sand and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my commands. We'll stop there. I think Abraham has a lot to teach us about hope. And today there's three markers about hope that I want to communicate to you that should be able to help you kind of frame your mind not just against this, or not just uh, towards this, this belief that, oh, I just hope things pan out, but really it's going to give you some substance to your hope this season. Would you allow me to pray for us as we continue on our sermon? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and God, I'm grateful, 
grateful for your provision, God. I'm, I'm grateful for your love. I'm grateful for the way that you have uh, taken care of your people. And, and Lord, though things may be crazy and seem uh, all out of sorts, God, we thank you that you are committed to making things right. God, I thank you for instilling us with a hope of substance, a day in the future where we can look, that we can look towards where you would return to the world and make all things right. So, Lord, here between these two advents, we pray, God, that you would instill us with hope and to be agents of your kingdom, God, to, to take your message of hope, your gospel of hope, to a world that is hopeless. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does Abraham, Abraham have to teach us about hope today? There's a lot that we can say about this, but the first thing I want to tell you, we'll just keep it pretty simple moving forward, okay? It's this. Y'all ready? First point today is hope is developed by how we relate to God. Hope is developed by how we relate to God. Here's what I want to say about hope. Hope is not something that, that Abraham just willed himself into. Like, I think that we face this temptation in our world to just believe that things are going to turn out okay, and that's, that's not a terrible thing. But there is so much more to the hope that we have in Christ than to just kind of hope it works out. You see, Abraham could develop, or hope was developed in Abraham because of how he related with God. And what that means for us is if we look back through the, the recorded life of Abraham in the scriptures, we see that Abraham walked with God. That this wasn't his first kind of interaction with God, but he had this longstanding history of, of God coming to him and saying, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, okay. And Abraham responds in faith and he steps out on faith, right? And then he goes through it in some other scenarios and then some other scenarios and other things happen. And you can read it's just the, the few preceding chapters. Uh, but what we see is in that time, Abraham's relationship with God flourished. It wasn't just some happenstance. You see, just like the, the people you relate with in the, in the closest way, the people you love most dearly, you get to that point because you share time, you share values, you learn from them, you listen to them, you learn their wants, you learn their, de you learn their desires, you learn, um, you, you learn the things that, that get their heart moving, right? You learn that inspire them. You learn uh, everything about them that helps you relate to them. And Abraham had done this leading up to this point. And I'm going to highlight a, a few things, right? Like when I think about uh, what he'd done, we see that God had been faithful to his promises, even though at one point Abraham had failed. This promise that God had given Abraham was, I'm going to bless you through your children. But the problem for him was he was old and, if, and his wife was old. And they were well past that, that childbearing age. And so uh, he and his wife got together. They talked about it. Uh, his wife suggested, hey, you know what? Why don't you take my servant and have a baby with her, and God will bless that child, and that will be the promise. The problem with that is that's not what God called them to do. It was supposed to be Abraham and Sarah's promise to bring to fruition. And so even though Abraham stepped outside of God's plan and process and tried to take matters into his own hands, trying to answer his own what-ifs, God still blessed him. And what we see here is Abraham, having been blessed by God and led by God time and time again, gets to this place that just seems crazy. He's called by God to go a three-day's journey into a mountain to bind up to lay him on an altar and to kill him. What on earth would possess Abraham to go through with that? 
I would argue that it's hope. That doesn't seem like the natural reaction for, for us, but here's what I think, right? I would argue that it's hope, and if that makes us uncomfortable, it's because we carry with us that cultural small view of hope, that it's just this pie-in-the-sky, optimistic mental framework, that if we believe it, we can do it, and all sorts of things. But I want to quote Eugene Peterson, this pastor uh, from a few decades ago. He said it this way. He said that hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not a fatalistic resignation. Hoping is not dreaming, it is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. And I think sometimes that's what we do, is we leverage this idea of hope as a means to avoid hard realities. And that's why we fight, we get in this strife and we have our what-ifs and our hypotheticals. It's just a means to try to take control of the things that feel out of control. And hope sometimes is the sticker we place on it and say, oh, everything's good. But really what we're just trying to do is avoid the hard realities. I want to tell you today with great encouragement that God does not avoid our hard realities. And because God does not avoid our hard realities, we can have hope. Biblical hope has substance. It is not empty avoidance. Biblical hope is firmly established in the reality of who God is. And Eugene Peterson would go on to say it this way. He says, hope means a confident, alert expectation of God or that God will do what he said it is the imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do his way and in his time. And what Abraham does for us is he shows us hope or how hope is developed by how we can relate with God too. My question for you is, are you relating with God? That's a personal question. I mean, like you, you need to answer that. Are you relating with God? Do you have the kind of relationship with God that if he were to say, I you to take four steps three, uh, this way and three steps that way and then jump three times and 18 jumping jumps, whatever you want it to be. And if you heard that from God, you would say, okay, doesn't make sense, but I'm, I'm here for it, God, whatever, whatever you got. See, because that's kind of how it was with Abraham. And God had given him more than just instructions on how to do some jumping jacks. Really, what God gave him was a promise that gave him some sustenance and direction in his life. God had given him the promise to give him generations to match the number of stars. And Abraham believed God because God had shown himself to be. And what the scripture tells us, and this is important for all of us today, in Abraham's belief, he reacted, responded in faithfulness. His response to hope in faithfulness was counted to him as righteousness. What I want to say about that is, is this, right? Abraham remained hopeful in a dire situation. God was calling him to do the unthinkable. So why did he do it? Because he had hope that God was faithful to his promises. And even though it didn't make sense to him in the moment, and he didn't see how it could all pan out, he didn't see how God could, could bless the world through Isaac like he had testified previously, he knew that God would figure it out. He knew it wasn't his problem to try to figure out. He knew that God was in the business of making it right. So how did he respond? He, re he responded by remembering the faithfulness of God. And I like this, right? Abraham raises the knife. The angel of the Lord, a messenger from God, speaks out to him. Abraham, Abraham, he says his name twice, meaning, hey, pay attention, don't miss this, I'm talking to you. He says his name. Keep in mind, this is a new name that God had given him, which means the father of nations. You see, what God did for Abraham in that moment is he reminded him of his promise twice. Abraham, Abraham, father of nations, father of nations, do not hurt that boy. Even
even in his faithfulness. Here's what Abraham did, and I want to encourage you with. Abraham learned to listen to divine disruption. As a parent, I know what it's like to be disrupted. Amen, right? Amen. Disruptions aren't fun. And we spend a lot of our time trying to avoid them. We try to get to silent places to try to hear from, you know, hear from God. And, and we talk about our prayer closets. All that's great. Keep doing it. But Abraham related with God so well that he could hear God above his issues, above his emotions, above the what ifs. He made himself available to the divine disruptions. And he did this because he had spent time cultivating an ear. What the prophet Isaiah would say right in chapter 55, as he, later he would say this, he says, writes on behalf of God, incline your ear to me. Develop the ability to listen. Hear me out. I think sometimes what happens is we become guilty of hearing God and then, stop listen, then we stop listening once we get what we want. And I think that's a real problem for us, right? Sometimes we can't hear God because we stopped relating to God after we got what we want from God. The response for that for you should be this, what Eugene Peterson would call the long obedience in the same direction. It's that language that Jesus calls his disciples to when he says, hey, follow me. And so immediately the disciples dropped their nets and followed him. They said, God, I'm leaving my whole life behind. I'm following you. Whatever you say goes. You have my schedule. You have my feet. You have my resources. You have my will. You have my hope. God, I'm trusting you with this. See fit to do with my schedule what you would. See fit to do with my family what you would. Which takes us to our next point. That hope is demonstrated by what we release to God. What did Abraham release? His son. And I think about it this way, right? Like earlier in the chapter, when the angel first tells Abraham, I need you to go to this mountain and, and take your son, he says it this way. It's not just take your son. He says, I want you to take your only son, whom you love. If you have one son, you don't need to be reminded that that's your only son. But the angel reminds Abraham of how important that child is to him. And he said, I want you to take him and sacrifice him. It seems crazy, right? And I would, I would imagine uh, that, that offering Isaac on the altar was the hardest test that Abraham ever had to face. But what we know is that he came through, Abraham came through victoriously because he trusted God. But I want you to think about it this way. If you were Abraham in this story, what what ifs would come to your mind? What excuses would you start throwing up God when he calls you to do something crazy? In this situation, these are just some of my, my quick responses. As I thought about that, what would I do? I would, I mean, honestly, the first question I would ask is, what if I'm hearing wrong? Because there's no way this seems like something God would call me to do. What if I'm hearing God wrong? We want to rationalize the things that we don't understand about God. Or what if, what if God has lost his mind? Because this sounds crazy. Or then we follow up with, what about the promise? I mean, God, you've already performed miracles. You gave me a child whenever I was past the child having age. Like, what about that promise? Are we supposed to 
supposed to start over? I mean, like decades, I mean, like uh, years have gone by since that time. Like, how are we supposed to make this thing work? God, none of this stuff makes sense to me. And we ask the what ifs, right? What if, what if, what if, what if? And all it does is just drives us crazy. But here's where I think the problem is. Here is where hypotheticals threaten our hope. And then this passage, uh, uh, there's some interesting conversations that we've had, or because of this passage, some interesting conversations we've had in my house this week. As I was telling my wife, as our eight-month-old sits on her lap and our four-year-old runs through the house anticipating his fifth birthday. What if God called us to do something like that? That's a conversation for Selena and I. But man, it made for some interesting conversations, insightful conversations. And really what it came down to for us is we began to uh, understand that we are holding on to our kids. Were they a gift from God? Absolutely but they make poor substitutes of God. As a youth pastor, I want to say it, teenagers are special. They make poor substitutes of God. As a husband, I want to say spouses are special. They make poor substitutes of God. As a pastor, I think pastors are special. They make poor substitutes of God. See, what God calls us to release it's not for the point of death and decay and destruction. God wants us to release the things that are hindering our ability to walk blessed, hopeful lives. And I think what we can learn to do is get into the habit of bringing all of these things that we value before the Lord so we don't serve the things, but we serve the Lord who gives the things. So for Abraham... It's a test, but it was also a test of hope, I think, because it was the reality that, that Isaac wasn't the promised one. I mean, he was, but Isaac was the one through whom God would bless the world, right? And so it was a test of hope for God's plan of salvation, for the world was wrapped up uh, in Isaac. If Isaac died, you can imagine Abraham's going to be asking those questions, right? Well, how is the Jewish nation going to be built? How is the Savior going to be born? But Abraham had a living hope because he trusted in a living God. His circumstances did not dictate or deter him from focusing on the, uh, the promises and providence of God. So Abraham released his only promised son whom he loved, through whom his offspring would be traced, through whom God, would, uh, God intended to bless the world. Because, uh, and he did all this because he has hope. So he stepped out into the apostle, ready to do the unthinkable, trusting that the Lord would provide. And Abraham's faith in God is evident in the way that he does a handful of things in this passage. The first thing is this, in verse 5, what he does is he tells the, the young men accompanying him, he says, hey, we're going to go up and worship God. You guys here, stay here, but we're going to come back. So even though he knew calling him to sacrifice his son, Abraham knew, I don't know how it's going to work out, but God does. I'm trusting that he's going to bring him back. So we're going to go. Evidence of faith. And then evidence of faith is also seen in Abraham and how Abraham tells Isaac, the Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham's up there. I mean, Isaac's up there just like, okay, so where's the lamb? It's you, buddy. But that's not what Abraham says. He says the Lord's going to provide. We need not worry about how to make sense of this. Because we know who does make sense of this. It's not for me to have the intricacies of things figured out. It's not for me to answer all of the what ifs about this situation. It's up to me to surrender to the God of hope, who is faithful to his promises. 
And what I love is that as Abraham does this, the Lord does what the Lord does. He provides. I just want to tell you guys, the whole point of the sermon isn't even about your what-ifs. It's about the fact that God provides. Listen to me. I don't know what circumstance you're in. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know if you're full of hope, no hope, muscle mental hope, okay? But I do know that because of the work of God and in his providence, you can have hope secured. The what ifs aren't a problem when you remember who's really in control. And when we fail to remember God's power and provision, we will experience uh, uh, we will experience, uh, won't experience blessing. But when we remember God's power and provision, we will experience hope and blessing. You see, I think what Abraham does is he challenges us to lay down the idols of our own lives. The things that we can't release, I think, reveal the idols in our, our own lives, right? And what, what Abraham did not only showed us that God was willing to get, or that Abraham was willing to give his son, but also shows us that Abraham was willing to give of himself, you see, God's faithful love to us is best, I won't say best, it's better experienced by us when we give our lives to Jesus. There's no opportunity to experience hope apart from God. And in the same way that Abraham, where God provided Abraham with a, a lamb for the sacrifice, we would see 42 generations later, God provides his own son as a sacrifice, not just for Abraham, but for you and for me. The sacrifice that, that says, hey, your sins separate you from a holy, righteous God, but that holy, righteous God wants to bless you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to save you. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He's going to send his son to die for you so that you might not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. What a message of hope. And listen, what I want to do for us is I want to turn to I want to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see a genealogy of Jesus. Uh, it's Christmas season. You're probably like, why are we talking about Abraham and Isaac? Here's why we're talking about Abraham and Isaac, because we're going to see it here in the first couple verses, is that this, God was faithful to his promise. In sparing Isaac, what he did is he made a way possible to bless the world. But maybe not in the way that Abraham would have expected, but it's the way that everybody needed. Abraham didn't need to know the intricacies of what needed to happen. He just needed to be faithful. And because of that, we have this, ge this genealogy of Jesus, not just some baby in a manger, but the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of your life and mine. God is faithful. God provides. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to butcher these. I did first service. It's going to be fun. All right. Be good, guys. Most of the time we skip these, but there's a reason we're going to go through it today. Here's what I'm going to say, right? The chapter 1, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob. Do you know how Isaac fathered Jacob? Because he lived, because he lived to father Jacob, because God had made a promise that he would bless the world through Abraham, through Isaac. So let's keep going. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, and Judah fathered Perah by Tamar, and Perah uh, fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashem, Nashem fathered Salmon, Salmon uh, fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, 
Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijab. Abijab fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers. And at the same time, or at the time of the exile, um, as the exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah uh, fathered uh, Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel uh, fathered Ebiod. Ebiod fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Christ, uh, to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. From the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. Listen, here's one of the things I want to say about all of this, right? Uh, most of the time when we read uh, genealogies, we just skip them, right? Because you don't have to suffer through your own voice in your head, let alone mine, through a microphone, right? Reading these these. Uh, uh, these names, but here's what I want to say. The reason I want to read these genealogies is because every name that is listed here is a part of the promise. Every single name is a part of the promise. Every name represents somebody who was used by God to make his hope our reality, his promise our hope. We read the names because it shows us all of what God went through to deliver his people, you and me, from death and despair. Abraham had hope because he had a relationship with Yahweh. And we have hope today because of our relationship with Jesus. 42 generations were told about Abraham's sacrifice. 42 were told about Abraham's sacrifice, but 40 generations after Abraham, there would be another sacrifice of hope where God gave his life in Jesus Christ. What I would say to this is if you want hope, the only place to find it is in Christ Jesus. The third point I would encourage you with today is this, that, that hope is determined by how we receive Jesus. God is not idly just sitting by waiting to figure it out. God is faithful at minimum 42 generations. But the same God who's faithful through these 42 generations is the same God that the scriptures testify is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We serve a faithful God who's committed to his promise. And when we get locked up in our what-ifs and hypotheticals, we fail to see the power and provision of God. The fact that Abraham was provided a ram to spare the life of his son. What God did is he spared his son, or he, he sacrificed his son to spare our lives and to save us for eternity. That's a heavy reality. But that's a reality each of us need to deal with. We have hope because of Jesus. Our circumstances don't get to dictate his power or his promise. Our circumstances, our ability to outmaneuver our problems do not get to uh, add a blessing or subtract a blessing. What we do is we look to God, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we cling to that hope, we cling to that promise, we cling to that confession, trusting that he understands us, but also that he's gone before us, he's made a way so that we can have life for eternity. 
And God did this because he loves you. Like I, 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 We say God loves you so much in church, and it's great, but we say it so much, I think, sometimes that we might lose the reality of that, that, listen, God loves you. Whether you feel it or not, God looks at you. He's beyond the external trappings, and he's beyond the sin, and he sees a heart, he sees a person that is worth dying for. God sent his son because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is our message of hope. God is a God of providence. He sent his son so that we don't have to live hopeless. My question for you is, have you received Jesus? Keep it simple. Have you received Jesus? The answer is yes or no. Not, well, you know, back when I was seven, I mean, the answer is yes or no. Have you received Jesus? I think that's the first thing that we need to deal with today. Is if you have not made a commitment to give Jesus your life, to lay your life down before him, then you are lacking hope and direction and your eternity is not secured in the way that you want it to be. But all that can change today if you give your life to Jesus. What scripture tells us, right, is if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that you raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It really is that simple. There's no power or magic in the, in the words that we ask people to recite. It's really just about the power of a sincere heart before a sovereign God who says, God, I need you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, this is your time. So I'm going to invite everybody in the room to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to invite you to recite these words after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask you for your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I invite you to come into my life. I want to trust you. I want to follow you. You are my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.